0: What issues am I tackling here? There's a lot of trust that goes into giving up control and entering one of these psychedelic states. So there's a lot of rapport building that's going on with the therapist at that point in time, and a lot of just psychoeducation, session logistics, what could happen so that the person is prepared or at least has an idea of the range of things that they could expect and perhaps some techniques to help them navigate the more difficult
1: aspects of the non-ordinary state. Hey everybody, my name is Josh Remini. I am the pharmacist that de-prescribes drugs by giving people health and wellness tips, tricks, hacks to moving their health from maybe not so good to vibrant. Follow along if you're ready to go beyond the pills. Hello, everyone. I am really excited about my next guest, Dr. Ben Malcolm. I'm going to read his bio and we're going to have an awesome conversation today. I'm super excited about this one. I can't be more excited about introducing this topic to pharmacists. So Dr. Ben Malcolm earned his bachelor's degree in pharmacology at the University of California at Santa Barbara. Prior to his his master's in public health and his doctorate in pharmacy at Toro University, also in California. He completed postgrad residency in acute care at Scripps Mercy Hospital and psychiatric pharmacy in the University of California at San Diego. After residency, he obtained board certification in psychiatric pharmacy and he began his career as assistant clinical professor at Western University of Health Sciences College of Pharmacy. Dr. Malcolm's interests focus on the intersection between psychiatric meds and psychedelic therapies. He has given several continuing education presentations to pharmacists and other healthcare professionals, as well as published over dozens of articles in peer-reviewed literature relating to psychedelics in our psychiatric medications. Currently, as a psychopharmacology consulting practice and resource and support membership relating to the use of psychedelics in psychiatric meds, and via his site, spiritpharmacist.com. Dr. Malcolm envisions a society in which access to psychedelic drugs in a variety of safe and supported settings is available for purposes of psychospiritual well being, personal development, ceremonial sacraments, and treatment of mental illness. His vision guides his scholarship education and service related professional activity. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Ben Malcolm. How's it going today?
0: It's going really good. Thank you so much for having me as part of the Wellness Summit.
1: Oh, so this is an awesome topic because today we're going to talk about psychedelics, drug interactions, mental health, the role in pharmacists. So tell me a little bit about your story and how you became the pharmacist that specializes in psychedelic therapies.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you just read my bio. So I think we have like a pretty solid recap of the educational path that I took and kind of where I began my career as an academician. But I really became interested, I would say, in addictive or psychoactive substances. Before undergraduate, I was watching reality TV shows about addiction, particularly intervention, and it really sparked my curiosity: like why. Do drugs that have different physiological effects kind of converge in addictive behavioral patterns? And it led me to just start searching for illicit drugs actually on the Internet. And I was introduced to psychedelics there. And just through reading anecdote after anecdote, it became apparent that the kind of trajectory effects and stories that people were telling about psychedelics were very, very different than other types of substances that are regulated as illicit substances like heroin or cocaine. So that sparked my interest in them initially. And through my training in undergraduate, I got to study pharmacology. I was kind of just inspired to keep studying something that I was already interested in, but I was also introduced to the idea Of ritual psychedelic use or ritual use of entheogenic sacraments that's been going on for thousands of of years. And I think this was the moment where they grabbed me because there was something amazing to me about the idea that there was a biological construct to religious experience or spirituality, in that if you stimulated certain types of serotonin receptors and put a person in the type of context or setting, that has some spiritual significance or is ritualistically ingested, then there's a really high chance that they're going to have this kind of bona fide spiritual, mystical, or religious type of experience. And it also always puzzled me why pharmacists were just so narrowly focused on prescription drugs, because so many persons and patients are using recreational or illicit types of substances. And it seems to be part of a holistic evaluation of a person to account for those types of things. I was a long circuitous educational path. I didn't always know that I wanted to specialize in psychedelics, but something during my PGY1 residency year just kind of clicked where it had been, you know, over a decade, I've been interested in psychedelics. You know, it seems like I'd kind of come full circle. And the thing that sparked my interest at the beginning of the day was still the most interesting thing, a doctorate degree and you know, many, many years of study later. And at that time, the research scene around psychedelic assisted therapies had really heated up to the point where there was an evidence base now and felt that I could make a career trajectory out of it. And that's essentially what I decided to do going into the PGY-2 in psychiatric pharmacy.
1: Wow. So you basically knew your path from almost day one, like it just found you that way, which is kind of amazing. Because I think when you're a proponent of plant medicines, especially and you start to understand the properties and the spiritual aspect of it, it's almost like they guide you, right? It's interesting how that guided you is through your pathway as well.
0: Yeah. And again, it was very circuitous and I did not know that I wanted to do that, but I always just followed my curiosity. I didn't necessarily go to pharmacy school because I ultimately wanted to work as a retail pharmacist or a hospital pharmacist, or I didn't know what kind of pharmacist I wanted to be. I just knew that this is the curriculum I want to study because this is what's the most interesting thing to me. And that's kind of how I've always done it is like, well, if you want to be passionate about your work, then you have to pick something that there's this intrinsic level of curiosity about.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm a big purpose over profit kind of guy. I think a lot of times we get stuck in some of those realms of doing it for this or doing it for that. So I love hearing that passion coming out. So I love the name Spirit Pharmacist. When I came upon that as an advocate in the realm of psychedelic and plant medicines, I love that name. So tell me a little bit about how that came about, because I'm super curious, but I also love it.
0: Yeah. So it's almost trying to brand a new niche of clinical pharmacy that inherently recognizes that certain types of drugs have properties or subjective qualities to them that people very frequently identify as spiritual. We know drugs can have physiological effects cognitive effects, emotional effects, but spiritual effects of drugs is something that I never really learned about in pharmacy school, and I don't think gets discussed very often. And I also just believe that there's kind of a deep level of spiritual sickness that's pervasive in our culture that tends to really drive a lot of the mental health struggles, perhaps around addiction or perhaps around depression, you know, people not being aligned with what they truly want to do or their purpose in the world or seeking something outside of themselves in illicit drugs, but never really being able to attain the type of internal state that they're actually looking for in that substance. Overall, with mental health, I just believe that each person is on their own path and their own journey. And I don't know what it is that is going to make each and every individual happy. I feel that that is a self-discovery process that they're going to have to go through. And it's apparent from medical literature that psychedelics are the types of substances that can give people an experience that has high level of personal meaning and spiritual significance. And so in some ways, I really like The idea that a psychedelic can be an internal guide or a way that reveals where that person's true north is as far as a direction to go rather than, okay, well, you have this cluster of symptoms. So let's match you to this type of chronic daily medication taking and practice in this blanket algorithm guideline recommended style part of it is just a recognition that drugs do have spiritual effects and qualities. And part of it is kind of a recognition to the idea that we're all on an individual hero's journey type of allegory for our
1: lives. Ah, I love it. Beyond the pill, that's sort of the process of what we do here. I think pharmacists in general were taught the body and some of the mind piece, but we don't really ever get into the spirit side. So I love how you incorporated that, but it also has like significant meaning because you're right. Using psilocybin, MDMA, these things that are coming up into the literature as really beneficial, but that spiritual side. I remember when I read Michael Poland's book, How to Change Your Mind and They literally said like 83% of people that have gone through the right set and setting journey with plant medicines, in this case, it was psilocybin, had that 80% plus had a profound spiritual or internal experience that was like their top three in their life. It was like the birth of their kids and this experience. And I don't think a lot of people understand that because I think the stigma is still there. You know, you're going to wig out and it's going to be wrong. But So tell us a little bit about where we are right now with psychedelic therapies. I know that MAPS is kind of getting the move on with getting some things starting to literally be FDA approved. So tell us a little bit on the updates since you're my expert now in this realm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So psychedelic is a broad umbrella term. It means mind manifesting. And when people say psychedelic, they're usually referring to classic hallucinogens, which have serotonergic types of mechanisms. And these include substances like LSD, psilocybin, and then dimethyltrypamine, or simply DMT, as well as mescaline. There's also a number of novel designer types of psychedelics or drugs that function very similarly to to psychedelics. And these are things like MDMA. It's kind of a novel designer phenethylamine stimulant. But we think of phenethylamines as pharmacists is usually kind of like amphetamine backbone or perhaps even something like albuterol but it's possible with certain substituents to make a phenethylamine lean very serotonergically, and that's what MDMA is essentially. You can also say that drugs that don't have serotonergic mechanisms could be psychedelic. For example, the dissociative anesthetic ketamine, there's actually a nasal inhaler or inhalation spray, S-ketamine, or Spravado, that's FDA approved at this time. The racemic formulation of ketamine was actually the one that was originally studied the most for psychiatric indications in the early 2000s. And clinicians are able to use that for psychiatric indications, although it's an off label type of use. So, ketamine is the one that is actually medically approved and legally available. MDMA as you mentioned maps of the multidisciplinary association of psychedelic studies is developing MDMA assisted therapy as a treatment for refractory PTSD and they're in phase 3 so they're getting close to crossing the finish line they published the first of their phase 3 trials and the data looked pretty good from that so i do expect that MDMA assisted therapy will probably get approved at the earliest later this year, but probably more like 2023, psilocybin has been given a breakthrough designation by the FDA for treatment resistant depression. It's being developed by a couple of companies, and that's in phase two trials. And there, at this point in time, believe it or not, there are over 60 companies developing psychedelics that kind of have a horse in the race. And the vast majority of those are preclinical or phase one at this point in time. I think perhaps maybe I should back up. I've used this term psychedelic-assisted therapy. And I think this is a really important point for pharmacists to understand is that this type of therapy is an augmented psychotherapy using the non-ordinary state that's produced by the psychedelic and it's not a chronic or daily type of therapy. Actually, the administrations of the psychedelic are quite finite, usually between one and three sessions and they're spaced weeks to about a month apart. And they do accompanying non-drug psychotherapy before, between sessions and afterwards. So really this should be thought of a larger structured psychotherapy intervention that uses finite and intermittent doses of a psychedelic substance to increase the efficacy of the psychotherapy.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really important point because as pharmacists, we're sort of diagnosed, treat with the drug, maintenance therapy. Let's talk a little bit about that because I think the pharmacists that are just getting hearing of this now is not like you just go out on your own and you just take some mushrooms and then go out into the wilderness and come back. There's a you've got to get ready phase. Then there's the during phase, which is assisted with a therapist or a doctor. And then you've got that integration phase, which I feel is like the most important piece. Like you said, it's like one to three sessions. You could Really work on someone medication resistant PTSD in one to three sessions, people get really good profound results. So talk to us a little bit about that three phases set and setting. What does that look like? Because it is a very different approach. I don't call it literally drug therapy. I think it's like you said, assisted therapy.
0: So you mentioned set and setting, which is almost a colloquial harm reduction type of framework for the use of psychedelic drugs that acknowledges that the mindset a person brings to the experience, as well as the setting or physical environment, play a large role in the type or quality of experience that a person is going to have. So I think with psychedelics, a lot of people have heard of bad trips And the idea that psychedelics can just turn on you and produce this just really awful experience. And this narrative around bad trips has really been challenged in the idea that well, it's a difficult type of experience, probably because the dose is incorrect. mindset of the person, they didn't have any education about it. They didn't know the types of effects that could occur. And they ingested in a setting that was perhaps busy, chaotic, unsupportive, or actually just hazardous. With psychedelics, the physiological risks of them are actually not that high. They have a pretty good safety profile from a physical perspective. However, they have profound, non-ordinary states of consciousness that are associated with them, in which a person has a lot less volition, a lot less control. Data is demonstrating that it's a neuroplastic type of effect. So they're kind of moldable in that space. And hopefully we're molding them towards an improvement or a therapeutic outcome. But there's this emotional vulnerability and suggestibility that comes along with this state that really requires a tightly controlled environment to enhance the safety and probably increase the chances of getting an optimal result as well. So As you mentioned, persons are starting with preparation psychotherapy where they're kind of getting a grip on what issues am I tackling here? There's a lot of trust that goes into giving up control and entering one of these psychedelic states. So there's a lot of rapport building that's going on with the therapist at that point in time, and a lot of just psychoeducation, session logistics, what could happen so that the person is prepared or at least has an idea of the range of things that they could expect and perhaps some techniques to help them navigate the more difficult aspects of the non-ordinary state. On the day itself, the psychedelic-assisted Psychotherapy is fairly non-directive and hands-off on behalf of the therapist. So it's not like they're taking mushrooms and then, okay, how are you feeling now? And then there's kind of like back and forth dialogue. It's really mostly an emotionally supportive type of therapy on the day of the experience. And the talking or the digestion of the experience is happening afterwards in the integration phase. And the idea of integration therapy is that, well, this experience showed you something, you know, some level of insight or realization, perhaps to the kinds of experiences that happen in a person's life that set them up or predispose them for the mental illness that they're experiencing. And there is oftentimes a lot of, change or transformation or psychological work that is going to be required to take whatever nugget of gold comes from the experience and make it more of a persistent result in the person's life so in a nutshell that's how the therapy is conducted
1: that's a great synopsis there's prep work there's the during phase, which is, yeah, like you said, it's hands off. It's the personal experience that people have, all those networks lighting up together in the brain that just doesn't happen. That's why we call it non-ordinary. It's a state of consciousness that we can get. You know, you can get there through breath work and holotropic breath work and meditation, but... This is kind of like short circuit. It goes there and then it comes out. And like you said, the integration phase is really where the work starts. And so thanks for bringing that up. So this is a summit for pharmacists. This is not a summit for psychotherapists. So what do you think our role is as pharmacists in optimizing as this movement comes? Because it's coming. There's publicly traded companies working on psychedelics like it's going to happen. And I love this renaissance. So tell us what's on the horizon for pharmacists. What can we do? We know people are doing it now, but it's just going to get better and more, more prevalent. So what do you think?
0: Yeah. So I feel that psychedelic drugs have some sort of special properties or effects that differentiate them from other types of drugs, but I don't necessarily feel that the role of the pharmacist is a whole lot different in that pharmacists are typically about two things mainly is safety and efficacy and you know maybe cost effectiveness as a sort of like a third type of thing. So when I think of well yeah there's 60 companies that are developing psychedelics that are trying to run clinical trials. So I feel that pharmacists have a big role in research and development in clinics themselves. I think pharmacists can be very involved in the screening of applicants, particularly When it comes to their medications and perhaps the underlying illnesses that the medications are treating, once some of these therapies get approved, the nasal spray for ketamine is approved, then it will become a question of who is going to pay for and under what circumstances. And psychedelics work in managed care types of environments or for insurance companies. And they're huge as far as educating persons or educating patients about the effects of different medications. So everywhere a pharmacist can normally work now, I think a pharmacist could also have a role as far as making psychedelic therapies safe and effective. There's many different research centers at academic institutions that are cropping up that specialize in psychedelics. So I think that in general, there is a massive role, actually, for pharmacists to fill and play when thinking about optimizing the safety and efficacy and even just the development and infrastructures around the delivery of psychedelic therapies.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how pharma takes this on because three doses and you're done. Wonder what the economics is going to be. That's a whole other topic. But we talk drug interactions. These are serotonergic modulators. There's other things that are going on similar to like cannabis and the cannabinoids with things like MDMA and psilocybin because I think those are pretty much the two that are coming besides ketamine, of course. So, I imagine as this moves forward, the first line of therapy is you have a relationship with your patient in the community. I've had these conversations with patients. They're asking for it in ways. So they trust us. So they're like, hey, what about this thing, psilocybin? What are the actual interactions going on with some of these meds?
0: Yeah. So as far as thinking about risks of drug interactions with serotonergic psychedelics, it's probably going to be serotonergic types of medications that have the most interaction risk. And I don't know if it's fortunately or unfortunately, but psychedelic therapies are essentially being developed for indications like major depression for PTSD, for obsessive compulsive disorder. There's a little bit of research on things like generalized anxiety disorder. And if you really think about it, the first line medications, according to whatever powers of be guidelines, are SSRIs and SNRIs. So, their serotonin reuptake inhibiting medications are probably going to be the most common types of medications that people are taking that end up being reasonable candidates for psychedelic therapies. And a lot of persons get very concerned about risks of serotonin toxicity anytime time that you're mixing two drugs with serotonergic mechanisms. However, serotonin toxicity is best understood as a form of poisoning resulting from drugs that can increase intrasynaptic serotonin. So one really big key component of understanding risk of drug interactions and whether there's a risk of serotonin toxicity is going to be understanding, do these psychedelics raise intrasynaptic serotonin? And are we combining them with other substances that have kind of complementary additive or synergistic mechanisms as far as increasing intrasynaptic serotonin? So psilocybin does not increase Intrasynaptic serotonin. Psilocybin is mostly a postsynaptic receptor agonist, psychedelic effects through the serotonin 2A receptor, but it's a partial agonist at serotonin 2A receptors. And this is probably why it's very difficult, if not impossible, to lethally define a dose of psilocybin that will define a lethal dose of psilocybin that will actually kill a person, is because there's a ceiling effect on how much serotonergic simulation can occur with psilocybin. And it doesn't really seem to matter what other serotonergic substance that you mix it with. Perhaps the caveat or exception there is lithium, which tends to modulate serotonin signaling from an intracellular perspective. So psilocybin, I think that the risk is perhaps a reduced or blunted response to the psychedelic therapy when persons are taking substances like SSRIs. And this would have to be an indirect type of interaction where, for whatever reason, the SSRI could potentially downregulate serotonin receptors in response to long-term use. But it's probably not a dangerous combination. MDMA, on the other hand, is a designer phenethylamine stimulant and has an amphetamine backbone to it. MDMA combines serotonin receptors. It does so weakly compared to psilocybin, but probably its primary mode of action is actually release of neurotransmitters or release of serotonin. So MDMA is the type of substance that can increase intrasynaptic serotonin, but it releases serotonin Reversal of the flow of the serotonin reuptake pump. So normally that reuptake pump is taking serotonin from the synaptic cleft back into the presynaptic nerve terminal, whereas under the influence of MDMA, the serotonin reuptake pump reverses its flow and becomes the method for serotonin being released into the synapse. So you may think, well, okay, SSRIs increase intrasynaptic serotonin and MDMA increases intrasynaptic serotonin, so they must be risky in combination, or they must increase the risk of serotonin toxicity, but it doesn't really appear to be the case because the SSRI occupies the serotonin reuptake pump and basically shuts down MDMA's mechanism of action. Probably not a really high risk of serotonin toxicity when you're using pure substances at moderate types of, of doses. And when you're thinking about the most common medications people could be taking, like SSRIs or SNRIs, most likely the risks are diminished responses to the psychedelic rather than serotonin toxicity, despite a combination like MDMA and SSRI independently being able to both increase intrasynaptic serotonin. Oh, I know that was, that was, a, that was um, a, a, ma- a mouthful a, here. A I little bit of a
1: mouthful. I know those things a little bit, but what I got out of that was we need medical providers providing guidance for people that do this. You don't go to like, there's no shaman on this corner where you can go deal with this. These are real mechanisms that could be potentially, like we said, there's harm reduction techniques here. And also you want to get the best outcome. So a lot of times we have to de-prescribe things and get people off of the SSRIs before we right. go into a journey because the blunting effect. So it's a really other-
0: rough or challenging process for people yeah. in general. SSRI discontinuation or tapering and discontinuing them has been flagged in the medical literature in the last few years as being a lot more difficult than what's really been discussed in the last 20 or 30 years since, since prozac came to the market if the listeners as pharmacists are interested in exploring this topic more i did publish a review article called serotonin toxicity of serotonergic psychedelics in the journal Psychopharmacology last year and that article know, explains everything I said in writing so you can read it. And it also has some really nice diagrams that illustrate what I'm saying. So if it was gobbledygook, but you're really wanting to go deeper, that article is a wonderful place to look.
1: That's awesome. I love that because that was going to be one of my questions. All right, we heard this. How do we get more information? We'll get to that. Any other drug interactions people should kind of know off the cuff?
0: Yeah, sure. So I mentioned that the primary mechanism for serotonergic psychedelics producing psychedelic effects is binding to the serotonin 2A receptor, stimulating the serotonin 2A receptor. So all your atypical antipsychotics block the serotonin 2A receptor and are probably going to diminish the effects of psychedelics sleep ACE like trazodone or napazidone also block serotonin 2A receptors mirtazapine Uh, One of its enantomers does block serotonin 2A receptors. Boosperone has one article out there where they actually did a clinical study and demonstrated that it blunted the responses to psilocybin. So I think that pharmacists can put their thinking hats on, but things that are going to block the serotonin reuptake pump block serotonin receptors or compete at serotonin receptors are probably the types of serotonergic substances that are going to largely diminish effects of psychedelics. And then thinking about stuff like monoamine oxidase inhibitors, that gets really dangerous, particularly with serotonin releasing agents like MDMA. There's plenty to think about and also plenty that is not very well known that is going to need to be much better fleshed out to understand what should we do. Maybe SSRIs reduce the effects of psilocybin, but how much do they reduce the effects? 10%? Okay. I don't know if that really necessitates everyone needs to discontinue, whereas 40, 50, 60, 70%, then it just seems like it's going to be a waste of time, money, effort, resources to attempt that type of therapy with persons taking those antidepressants and We just mentioned that it can be a risk and difficult in of itself for people to stop or transition these medications. So there's a lot of open questions here around how we should manage serotonergic medications that people are taking so that they can get the most out of the psychedelic therapy in the safest way.
1: Yeah, I'm on a lot of those circles about the conversations that are happening right now. We don't know everything yet, but what I love is the ancient wisdom of these things. Isn't it interesting how they affect serotonergic, just like we've developed drugs for these things. It's like, oh, nature already had that for us, you know? Pretty interesting. So this is pharmacy. So there's, I like blending what I would say, the woo-woo with the science. And so based on current data protocols right now, who are candidates? Because we're screening people, there's mental health component there. We're talking addiction, PTSD, So as it sits right now, who are some good candidates that might be a candidate for a psychedelic therapy and may like that benefits outweigh the risk?
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll start with the converse or flip side of that question. And the persons with psychotic conditions like schizophrenia. Or persons that are have mania, like a bipolar one condition, they are squarely in the realm of contraindicated for yep. psychedelic therapies. It just makes sense from like a neuropharmacologic perspective. It seems like the medications that help them are essentially the ones that are the antithesis to the pharmacological effects of psychedelics. When I look at research protocols, the frontrunners, are MDMA for treatment refractory PTSD and psilocybin for treatment refractory major depressive disorder. So I think of, well, are they treatment refractory? Have they actually tried different types of antidepressants? And what do those trials look like? How did they respond to those types of things? So thinking about, is this a First line therapy at this point in time, where someone is freshly diagnosed with a depression or PTSD and they've never tried anything, should we go straight to a psychedelic therapy? I couldn't say yes based upon the current state of the research. And similarly, they've had people discontinue and wash out substances like SSRIs, SNRIs. They're pretty restrictive actually with psychotropic medications. Even say that people have to taper and stop benzodiazepines for at least five half lives beforehand. I think probably because they don't want to confound their experiment with other types of substances that could make people better or give them side effects. They're washing all of these things out at the moment. And whether all of those things are necessary to wash out to get the benefit is unclear. But I will say that research is setting the precedent that minimal amounts of psychotropic medication in combination is where we're at at this point in time. And depending on the clinical trial, they do allow some comorbidities in sometimes. We're talking about treatment or refractory PTSD or major depression, so it may not be possible to screen out everyone that's had suicidal ideation in the past but they typically are not enrolling people that are actively suicidal similarly with substance use disorders a lot of people self medicating PTSD so they're allowing moderate amounts of alcohol use okay if you can abstain from cannabis for a day or a few ahead of the therapy then you can be in there but no methamphetamine use disorder or the type of alcohol use disorder that would really require a detoxification probably to be able to safely become sober. I will say that they're picking people that are treatment refractory, by the definitions of what those things are, failure of medication trials, but there's some additional screening in place that probably selects people that are not the most severe cases overall, or at least in their current situation, they're not the most severe case, even if they've had crises that are a little bit more distant in their history.
1: Yeah. So we've talked a little MDMA, talked a little psilocybin. So let's talk a little bit about ketamine just because it's FDA yeah. approved. Yeah. Pharmacists are seeing it. I use it for pain cream. It's compounded. We know that word ketamine as a drug per se, and providers are using it off label now. So it's kind of yeah. like when something's approved, then we just use it for everything. Just look at Neurontin. So with ketamine, how is it different than the serotonergics?
0: Yeah, so ketamine is completely different and it's mostly a glutamatergic antagonist. It blocks NMDA receptors, is what we think of as a primary mechanism of action. There's a lot of really exciting and interesting research as far as erasement ketamine, R-ketamine, S-ketamine, because it does seem that the enantiomers have different pharmacology and different effects and it may very well turn out that one enantomer is more suited to psychiatric indications versus pain indications and things of of that nature. I will say that ketamine differs in the treatment protocol as well, is that oftentimes persons are receiving six to eight doses of ketamine in an induction round over a period of four to eight weeks. So between one and three times a week for somewhere between I'll say like six and twelve ketamine administrations, where that's a lot more frequent than something like psilocybin or MDMA since the therapy where you're kind of using one to three sessions that are spaced more like weeks to months apart. Most of the data that we have with ketamine, I will say, is like naked ketamine administration. So it hasn't really gain so much traction as like ketamine-assisted therapy. And I believe many people in the realm of MDMA or psilocybin-assisted therapy do practice a ketamine-assisted therapy. Like, it's very much the same as far as preparation and integration, psychotherapy, and support for the experience itself. But most of the clinical trials and data that we have supporting ketamine is safe and efficacious doesn't really feature that. So that's one question in my mind about ketamine is if we adopted some of the same therapy protocols for serotonergic psychedelics, would we see improvements in efficacy or not? And obviously, therapy consumes resources. So we want to understand how much support is necessary versus how much is superfluous and maybe better directed at treating more people, for example. Ketamine is also different in that it's been demonstrated to be effective for depression and bipolar conditions, including bipolar one disorder, where, as I mentioned a moment ago, that would essentially be an illness that's considered contraindicated from use of serotonergic psychedelics. And ketamine's also been studied and shown to be safe in conjunction with the mood stabilizer lithium, which is toxic in combination with things like psilocybin. Or MDMA. So I think for the person that has a bipolar depression that's taking lithium, let's just say they were all legal right now and you're picking between them, it would be very easy in that consideration or case to pick ketamine over serotonergic, psychedelic. Ketamine really is wonderful for depression. There's a little bit more information coming out that seems helpful for PTSD. As you mentioned, though, ketamine has analgesic types of properties. You're using it for pain cream. So I tend to think, wow, we've got a patient with some pretty severe depression, as well as some maybe a chronic pain condition. I start to lean towards ketamine for their indications on top of obvious reasons around legality and things like that.
1: Yeah, I just, I love 2 right? If you can get yeah. a twofer out of it, then it's like, oh, well, you're taking these meds for depression, but the depression is mostly because of your chronic pain, right? Right. You think right. of chronic fatigue, chronic pain syndrome, things like that. You do this for a living, right? You yeah. consult patients, but you also consult practitioners on this space so tell us a little bit about spiritpharmacist.com what you got going on with like we're planting seeds here in this summit and now we planted a big one with oh i need to learn more about this because it's very interesting to me so tell us a little bit about what you're doing Yeah, so
0: spiritpharmacist.com really focuses on the interface between psychiatric medications and psychedelics. So I offer courses in psychedelic pharmacology, also have some webinars, different types of drug interaction guides available for people. I have a course in antidepressant tapering. So I would say like education is one Big aspect of what the site is about. The other one is the consulting services, because you can read a guide that says, well, there is some interaction, but everyone's question is, well, what do, what do I do? How do I approach it, given my history and how difficult tapering is for me and my overall benefits or side effects that I'm gaining from my existing drug regimen and where do I want to go? So the consulting is very much about helping individuals, providers, or organizations to manage or navigate from point A to point B. So those are the two big pillars of what the site offers. And then I have a member resource and support program where they overlap. So a subscription basis, you get my Netflix library of all my courses and webinars, but I also do email based question and answer as part of the member support program. So maybe people have quick questions or things that we can just sort out via email. And if that doesn't work as a, a gatekeeping like first line of defense, or it becomes apparent through the email Q and A that it would be way better to discuss this and go through the situation individually, then they can also access discounted consulting rates when they're on the member program versus persons that are outside of it. So I like to say it's pretty simple. There's education, there's consulting, and then there's education plus consulting, and that's pretty much the site in a nutshell.
1: Oh, I love business made simple. It's just so much easier to condense that. I love your website. It's great, and your content is awesome. You are offering something, right? I asked every speaker yeah. to say, what is your offer to pharmacists? And we're going to give them all the links to this stuff. Okay. So tell them a little bit about your offer.
0: Okay. Yeah. So I've put together the psychedelic and antidepressant drug interaction guide, and it also provides a little bit more on how to safely taper antidepressants as well as a structured monitoring tool where people can track their dose decreases and track how they're feeling in response to those dose decreases, and then customize their taper plan moving forward in response to how they're doing. There's just such a wide variability in the sensitivity of persons to antidepressant withdrawal. Some people, it's no big deal at all. Some people, even small dose decreases are very, very difficult for them. So this is available as a free resource for people. People can download a copy of it by joining my email list. And I really try not to be a spammy (laughs) internet marketer and give the email list value. So on a monthly basis, I do a PubMed literature search of whatever new articles came out around psychedelics and create a summarized list of those for people. So my offer is the antidepressant psychedelic drug interaction guide. You can download it for free when you join my email list, and then hopefully we'll stay in touch and be able to stay updated on the research together from there.
1: Yeah, I love that. I'm on your list, so I can give you the testimonial. You don't spam me. You don't give me all useless information. It's very valuable and it's very centric to what we're doing as pharmacists. So I really appreciate all the work you're doing. In true pharmacist fashion, right, when we counsel somebody on a medication, we always want to give them at least one thing they need to do when they're leaving. So If you can give this audience one big take home from this awesome conversation we've had, what would it be? I
0: think that if you're listening to this conversation and you're like, yes, 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 yes then put your skeptic hat on because the research still is in fairly early days. There's a lot of hype and a lot of excitement, a lot of media coverage around these types of things. So there could be a large selection and or expectancy bias that is getting rolled into some of these clinical trials. So if you're over the moon enthusiast, I would say like approach the data skeptically. And if you're on the other end where you're like, what are you talking about? Dangerous hallucinogens to treat mental health disorders. That sounds like complete quackery. Then I would suggest reading into it a little bit more because your patients are going to have questions about this. And when you present a very judgmental and stigmatized attitude towards them, you're going to lose trust with that patient. And I think you said it, Josh, earlier in the conversation that whether you like this or not, the train has truly left the station here and there's a ton of momentum behind this. And I'm anticipating MDMA and psilocybin are almost definitely going to be approved in the next five years. Ketamine is already available. So it's just coming down the pike. And no matter who you are, I think we just always, as pharmacists, need to try to be objective and just give people the best information possible about both benefits and risks of these types of substances or any drug therapy really
1: yeah it's the renaissance is here like that's the point i think people need to know is it's coming it's already here oregon they're already working on their two-year process it's decrimmed in denver there's things that are happening i don't like to compare it to like cannabis but it's like that's the same space. They're not the same medications, but same space. It was unheard of that marijuana would be legal and now 36 states are legal and there's plenty of all of that. It's not the next thing because I really feel this plant medicine renaissance is becoming more and more attached to True healing. When you talk about a drug that can truly heal, it's got profound results on the planet. So I'm excited. Anything else you want these guys to know before we uh, send you off to Costa Rica? That's the other piece. I'm so jealous. I love your name, and you live in Costa Rica. So you're like one of my heroes now. But anyway. (laughs) But you do consult, right? Virtually, you have geographical freedom to live wherever you want. And I think that's Mm -hmm. another key point that we're going to make throughout this summit is the beyond the pill doesn't mean you got to sit behind a counter and dispense drugs and a supplement. We have so many niche opportunities to do specialty things and the riches are in the niches. I love reinforcing that with you is there's a success story here. This is your career. This is what you do. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. Like psychedelics are one aspect of it and that I specialize in them. But I'm a digital entrepreneur that gets paid for their knowledge and educating patients, providers and organizations about something that I have specialized knowledge in. And I just think of all of the pharmacists out there that have just such incredible amounts of specialized knowledge in so many different therapeutic areas. And I think the level of hunger that the public has overall for high quality information that helps them make sense of their drug regimens. I just feel that I came from academia a couple of years ago. There's too many schools. There's too many graduates. There's not enough jobs. And my hope in all of it is that surplus would breed innovation. If you cannot walk in and get the same type of employer job with all the benefits, then maybe you're more likely to go out and create something new. And I'm the living, breathing testament that it is possible for pharmacists to do this and to be able to get paid for providing their specialized knowledge and have essentially an unprecedented level of flexibility over how you live your life at the same time.
1: That's an awesome way to close this conversation out. Thank you, my friend, my new friend. I think we're going to have a great relationship with what we all have in common here. Yes, plant the seed. How about getting paid for this? It's such a novel approach for pharmacy, right? And what better time? Innovation, Coming out of COVID, we're used to this. So I really appreciate. It. I love this conversation. I hope it gives many, many people value. This is awesome. That everyone knows how to get a hold of you, and we're going to give them your free download. So thank you, my friend. We will talk soon, and hopefully, I'll get to see you sometime in Costa Rica.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Josh, for having.
1: Me. It's been such a pleasure having this conversation. Awesome. See All right, later, brother. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Pills podcast. You can find Josh on LinkedIn and Facebook at Josh Rimini and on TikTok at Beyond the Pills. And if you enjoyed today's episode, we'd be forever grateful if you left a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you know somebody who wants to go beyond the pills, send them this episode. If you've got any specific questions or ideas for future episodes, reach out to Josh and send him a message. Thanks again for being a part of the Beyond the Pills community. We'll see you next time.